want to welcome you here this morning. By the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our subsequent belief in Him, we experience spiritual healing. And we could quite easily make a video of the lives that have changed within this church because Christ has come into each of your lives. So for the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be doing a teaching series called Graphic Redemption. And you can see some of the work, the artwork that has been done already. And we're going to be talking about some questions that people have in regards to the Easter story and dealing with the answers for those as well. You likely remember the Passion of the Christ. That was the highest grossing non-English language film of all time. It grossed over $600 million. And everyone had an opinion on it. Some would express their approval, some would shout their disapproval. It was rated everywhere from one star to four stars. And the movie, no matter what you thought about it, your perspective, your upbringing, and your own spiritual life would have an influence on how you understood that movie. Now, several years prior to that, you had thought that Mel Gibson of Braveheart, and he was also a part of those Lethal Weapon movies, if you had thought that he would actually produce something that would have millions of people talking about the resurrection, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't have thought it was possible. But Jay Leno joked about it, and he said, the movie has done so well, they're actually thinking of making a book about it. And he got that backwards a little bit. But it did lead to people opening the Bible to see if what the movie said was true. But if you're new to Christianity, I'm going to give you a crash course here. The Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament basically talks about the Hebrew people. It gives predictions or prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament tells us that he has arrived. And then it closes off with the revelation that he will return again. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. They were written by some people who were close to Jesus. Two of those were disciples. Two were just part of that group of close followers. And Jesus was a very controversial figure. And even when people will look at those four Gospels, they will look at the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, they will still have trouble believing that this man who lived 2,000 years ago was actually the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul explains this controversy in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So after the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples, he predicted that someone was going to betray him. And then he went from there into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there a tug of war was taking place. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. The scriptures say to the point of death, he was struggling with this sacrifice that he was going to have to make. And it was an intense time. So he prayed this in Matthew 26. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, 
but as you will. Well, that movie that Gibson produced started off in a very powerful way. There was a tug of war going on between Satan and Jesus. Satan is trying to appeal to the human side of Jesus, trying to get him to actually take the easy way out and avoid his death on the cross. And I love the creative license that Gibson took, because after Jesus finally said no to the serpent, then he symbolically just stomped on the head of that snake. And that was actually a fulfillment of the first messianic prophecy, or symbolic fulfillment of it, which was found all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So that is the first mention of the fact that the Messiah, or the Son of God, was going to come into this world, that he was going to become one of us. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus makes up his mind that he's going to accept God's will regardless of the cost. And those who don't know the Gospel might wonder, well, why are they doing such horrible things to this nice man? Why such hostility? Why did they arrest him? The crimes that they're accusing him of aren't even worthy of arrest in the first place, and it's a first offense. Why are they going to kill him? But after Christ's arrest in the garden, then we see the interrogations begin. So look with me in chapter 26, verse 57 of Matthew. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So immediately, this meeting of the Sanhedrin is called. Now the Sanhedrin was actually the Jewish ruling council. It's like a supreme court. And there were 70 men that were in that group. But there was one more person there that day. Caiaphas, the high priest, was also there. But the Jewish law forbid them to have evening meetings of the Sanhedrin. So their illegal activity has actually begun already. They're holding an evening meeting about Jesus. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning answering the question, why did Jesus' people reject him? And even those who reject Christianity today and doubt that Jesus really was God in the flesh, they are quick to say, well, he was an amazing man. Or they will say, like, don't misunderstand me here. Like, I know that he lived an amazing life. Or they'll say, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet who promoted peace. He extended grace. He demonstrated love. And while all those statements are true, they fall so far short of who he really was. And it explains why the people rejected him. And the biggest reason why they rejected him is because he claimed to be God. Like that claim just infuriated the religious leaders. They couldn't accept that. In verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, This fellow, I said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three J's. 
And when Jesus said this, he was, of course, referring to his own body. And it was a symbolic thing. He was saying that my body will be destroyed. It will be in the grave for three days. And then it will come back to life again. But this would have raised a few eyebrows, but it certainly wasn't reason enough to cause an arrest, let alone a sentence of death. And 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now Jesus has been silent through all of this process, but now he decides to answer. And maybe it's because the judge has brought family in on this, because he said, I charge you by the living God. And so now Jesus answers him. And then in verse 65, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Now this is crucial to our understanding of Christianity. Christ's claim that he was God is a bold statement. And the high priest was actually correct in saying that it was blasphemy if Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. But then if he was the Son of God, then it wasn't blasphemy. It was the truth. But Caiaphas just kind of ignores that possibility altogether. And all throughout his ministry, some of Jesus' statements are kind of veiled a little bit about who he was. And you almost have to look back later to understand what he really said. But then there were other times when he was very straightforward. He was in your face about who he was. And Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath day, and the Jews were upset with them. And this is what he said to them in John 5, 17. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And then in John 8:58, I tell you the truth, Jesus declared, before Abraham was born, I am. Like a very straightforward statement. Even before our great forefather Abraham existed, I was there, I existed. I've got to be God. And then there was one time when the disciples were asking questions, you know, well, show us what God is like. And in 14, verse 9 of John, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the evidence of the miracles themselves. Like, why are you saying, show us what God the Father is like? like? Just take a look at me. I'm God in the flesh. He couldn't be any more clear with them. And then in Matthew 16, he and his disciples are in the area called Caesarea Philippi. And they've been hearing some rumors about who Jesus really is. 
So in verse 14, they answered, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, without any doubt, without any hesitation, without any fear or speculation, he answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there are all kinds of rumors about who people think Jesus is. One of these old prophets has come back to life again. But who do you believe I am? I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he said that, Jesus doesn't say, now, Peter, where did you get that idea? Where did you come up with some type of crazy notion like that? He doesn't say that at all. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. But you didn't believe this on your own. This is something that you could only have gotten from God. Now, it's difficult for us to understand that concept, that at one time Jesus could be 100% God, and then he could be 100% human at the very same time. Colossians 2, 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So there's Paul saying, yes, he's fully God, he's fully human, all at the same time. And then later when he was crucified, Pilate wanted to just poke fun, and he had this sign made up, King of the Jews. And, of course, the religious leaders said, no, you're not going to put that up there. But Pilate says, I'm putting it up there anyway. And Max Lucado wrote this about that. He said they mocked him as a king. If he were crazy, they would ignore him. If he had no followers, they'd turn him away. If he were nothing to fear, they wouldn't kill him. You only kill a king if he has a kingdom. And he claimed to be God, so they rejected him, and they killed him. Another reason they rejected him is because he didn't fit their concept of what a Messiah ought to be. That the Jewish people were looking for this special one. They were longing for him. And they seemed to be looking for someone who was going to bring peace. Someone who was going to come in and overthrow the Roman government. But there are some things you need to understand that Jesus didn't come as a physical or political ruler. His kingdom was spiritual. He wasn't the type of Messiah they were looking for. And they thought that power was going to be the only way that they could conquer. So they didn't even expect him to come the way he did. They didn't expect that he was going to conquer through love, that he was going to spread that message throughout the world. So to Pilate in John 18.36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So the people just didn't understand the nature of his kingdom, so they rejected him. They also rejected him because he didn't keep their traditions. That he allowed his disciples to eat grain without ceremonially washing their hands. He healed on the Sabbath, and these things went against the law. But Jesus was one who had the big picture in mind. He saw people who were in need of healing. And he wasn't going to wait till Sunday morning to do that. He was going to heal right away. He saw them all hung up on these legalistic traditions. But he saw through all of that. 
and he pointed these things out to them. And in Mark 2.27, then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And that's a statement that he's God, that I'm in control of this special holy day that we observe. So we heal people on the Sabbath. And the crowds appreciated his kindness. They appreciated the fact that he was healing them. The religious leaders despised him because of that. They just didn't understand that his kingdom was of a different sort, that it wasn't of this world. And then he associated with the wrong type of people. That he was one, first of all, who didn't fit their concept of a Messiah, but then he also willingly accepted those who society had rejected. In his economy of things, the so-called rejects or misfits were just as high in the pecking order as the elite were. He said, the first will be last, the last will be first. So he invested his time with the social misfits, the immoral, the uneducated, the dishonest. And now you'd expect that the religious leaders would heap all kinds of praise on him because he was spending so much time with that type of person. But instead, he was ostracized, he was rejected. But isn't it good news for some of us that he was the type of person that God wanted him to be, he was the type of person that spent time with the type of people that he did, that he wants us on his team. And in spite of my arrogance, in spite of my deceit, in spite of my consistency, in spite of everything that's wrong in my life, he still accepts me and wants me to be a part of his family. It's also an encouragement for us to get out of our comfort zone and spend time with people who are different than us. But Jesus just didn't fit that mold that they had, that idea that they had of a Messiah. And then we need to remember that he was a threat to the authority of the religious leaders. On two separate occasions, he came in and disrupted a very good business that they had going on in the temple courts. He just cleared everything off the tables. Money was sent flying. They were defrauding people. They were exchanging money into temple currency at four and five times the normal rate of exchange. And Jesus just couldn't take that any longer. And whenever the religious leaders tried to question him, they were trying to catch him in some type of trap. They'd ask questions designed so that, you know, he was in trouble if he answered this way, he was in trouble if he answered that way. But Jesus always answered those questions with flying colors. He passed all of their tests. After David Barkhouse's funeral, a young man came up and talked to me for quite a while. I thought he was a college student or something like that. But a few weeks later, he phoned me up, introduced himself, and I remembered him from the funeral. And he said, I am the one who produces CBC's Main Street program. And he said, I'm trying to actually open up our list of people that we can interview, and I'd like to have some people, some Christians, that I can call upon at times to interview on various topics. So then he phoned me back again two weeks ago, and he was wondering if anybody in our church would come and be interviewed to talk about religion and 
evangelical Christianity and politics. He mentioned the name of Rick Santorum. And I paid no attention to U.S. politics. So I asked Jim Minter, one of our associates, do you know Jim, who this is? And Jim gives me this big, long explanation. I said, why don't you go and be interviewed? So he did. And one of the things that Christians always fear when you're interviewed is that they're going to do like the religious leaders. They're going to ask you questions which you can't answer without getting in trouble. But he was assured by the moderator that they would only ask the questions that were on the list. And Jim came through very well. He was asked a number of repeat questions three or four times. The name of the church was mentioned on at least two occasions, so I said, that's great, we got advertising in there as well. But it was more than the actions of the religious leaders that bothered Jesus. Like he was more bothered by the condition of their hearts. Their hearts were so far away from God. And they were on such a, a power trip. And my men's home group studied Romans chapter 2 this week. And we looked at the pride that the Jews had. You know, we've got the law. And, and we've got circumcision. We have this special relationship with God. They felt that they were so much better than everybody else. And it's amazing how God works through people. He does anything He possibly can. He works through structures. He works through institutions. His creativity knows no bounds. And He'll stoop to any level in order to make a home wherever He feels welcome. He works through non-Christians. He works through Christians. And I know that there are times in all of our lives when we've chosen to do the things that Satan has tempted us to do. We'd like to have it some other way, but it's not that way. And pride is at the root of why Jesus Christ was rejected. And it's why we're doing this series on redemption. The Bible gives us a little more insight into the hearts of these particular religious leaders. Again, in Matthew 27, verse 18. For he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. Now this is Pilate that knew that. Pilate could see that it was envy, that it was jealousy that made these rulers bring Jesus to him in the first place. He knew that was why they wanted him out of the picture altogether. And that's why it's important for us to understand that although Jesus doesn't meet the criteria or concept of what they envisioned in their minds as a mighty Messiah, we must remember that he came exactly as God had promised. And there's one more reason why they rejected Jesus, and that's because Jesus demands life change. A woman who had been caught in the act of adultery was brought to Jesus and basically thrown at his feet. And one of those questions were thrown at him, like, what do you do with this woman? And Jesus passed that test with flying colors, and then he forgave that woman. And he told her to go and sin no more. So he was demanding a life change from her. A rich young ruler approached him at one time. And he asked Jesus, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you can start by keeping all the laws. And the young guy, full of pride, well, I've done all of that. And he obviously hadn't. So then Jesus said, okay, why don't you go and sell everything you have and give that to the poor. That was too much. He couldn't do that. But one thing we know is 
This is the only time in the Bible when Jesus asks someone to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. So why does he say it to this man? It's because Jesus could determine that this was the thing that stood between him and God. His wealth was preventing that true relationship with God and with Jesus. So Jesus demanded a life change if he was going to have a proper relationship with him. To the crowds, he said things like, you have to deny yourself and, and follow me and take up your cross every day. To the religious leaders, he said, woe to you, teachers and of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And this is what he said. He called them whitewashed tombs, which look great on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. So he was saying, on the outside, you appear to be so righteous, like you look so great, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So he demanded life change from those leaders, but they weren't willing to make that change. And as a result of that, they sent a detachment of soldiers. They were actually threatened by the popularity of Jesus and the message that he was sharing. And they had all kinds of opportunities in the past to be able to arrest him and do what they were doing now. But he was so popular, they were afraid of what the reaction of the people might be. But now they come to him to arrest him. And two of the gospel accounts tell us it's not just some of the soldiers that are present. It's all of these religious leaders. It would have been the 70 in that Sanhedrin. It would have been many others that were there. There were probably hundreds that came to arrest him that day. And they were armed because they didn't know what this miracle worker was going to do. They didn't know how he was going to respond. They didn't know what trick he might have up his sleeve. And then back in Luke 22, verse 52, it says it like this. Then Jesus said to the high priest, excuse me, the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard and the elders that had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And they heard his teaching, but they chose not to change. They chose not to repent. And some people have said, you know, I hope that non-Christians will go to watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ and as a result of it become Christians. But you know what I hope? I hope that Christians will watch movies like that and become Christians. And by that I mean that people who profess some level of belief, like I, I wish, I hope, I pray that they would begin acting and like they say, they believe, living like Christians. I want them to be distinctively different because they have received a visual representation of the extent to which God was willing to go because of his love for us. And as a result of that, they would never be the same again. But Jesus goes through six trials. Three of them are from the Jews. Three are civil trials. And they just kind of go back and forth from one to the other. And the Gospels aren't very flattering about the judicial process that unfolded here. Like they crossed the line over and over again and did illegal things. A trial wasn't supposed to take place at night, and it did. 
they, they used physical force to try and intimidate him before the trial, and that wasn't allowed. False witnesses gave conflicting testimonies, and the witnesses weren't even supposed to be in one another's presence. According to Jewish law, he was charged with blasphemy and a temple violation, but then when he ends up in a civil trial, they change the charges, and it's because he claimed to be a king, or that he's causing a disturbance, and he's refusing to pay taxes. He was convicted and executed on the same day, which should not have happened. It was against the law. And there were many other breaches of justice which made his trial a farce. And then the trump card that the religious leaders played to finally get Pilate to say, okay, I give in, you can have him. And that was Christ's claim to be God. The people just couldn't embrace the fact that he was the Son of God. Now, it's so easy for us to kind of look back and say, well, you know, if I was there, that never would have happened. Our men's home group, we would have all banded together. We would have run up to the cross. We would have, over, we would have wrestled with the soldiers, overwhelmed them, taken Jesus off that cross, and taken him away from there. Now, and we'd like to think that we would have done that, but his closest followers, they ran for their lives. So why do we think that we would have acted any differently if we had been there? We need to know the reason. That Jesus could handle the rejection and the brutal death on Mount Calvary. And that was because of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. So he chose to be obedient to God's plan to save the world knowing full well what the consequences were going to be for him. He chose to go to the cross. He wasn't taken to the cross. And then when Jesus was arrested, and he stood before Pilate, and, and they were badgering him over and over again to speak, and he continued to refuse to speak. And then finally, Pilate got in his face and said this in John 19, verses 10 and 11. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus opened his mouth and said, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So he's basically saying to him, Make no mistake, Pilate. You're not taking my life. I'm giving my life. That's a huge difference. And that scene was so dramatic in the movie that there's Jesus with his head bowed and Pilate's talking to him is firing questions at him finally he gets right down in Jesus' face and then Jesus lifts his face up and looks at Pilate you have no power over me that you have an important decision to make many of the people rejected Jesus that day but that's actually not important to us What's important to us is whether you have accepted or rejected him in your life. That he still claims to be God. He wants to have authority in your life. He may not be what you think you need, but yet he promises to be exactly what you do need. He will provide everything that you need in this life and the life to come. He promises to heal you. He asks you to be willing to change. But he promises you that once you change, that he's going to take control of your life. 
So you have a choice. Are you going to accept him or are you going to reject him? If you have a decision to make, you can meet me at the front as we stand and sing our commitment song. You can talk to me afterwards about that, about anything that's going on in your life that's holding you back from full acceptance of Jesus. Yes.